0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you're listening to episode 39. My guest today is world-renowned filmmaker Mira Nair. Her films include The Namesake, Monsoon Wedding, Mississippi Masala, and Salaam Bombay, for which she was nominated for an Oscar. This is a special episode because this is the first time where I didn't use Zoom and actually got to sit down with Mira Nair face-to-face and do this whole recording in person. And this is all thanks to the Toronto Film Festival, so a special shout-out to them. And also a special thanks to Nandita Dada from TIFF, who was very kind and very supportive and totally organized this whole thing. This episode would not have happened without her. This is going to be an awesome episode, so let's get moving. Let's begin. Here we go. Um, Okay, so my first question is you know, filmmaking takes a lot of guts. It takes a massive amount of self-belief. So many, people, so many people are dependent on you to lead them, and a lot of people have invested money on you. What made you think that you can do filmmaking? You know, Where did you get the courage and the confidence? And keep in mind that Salaam Bombay was no ordinary debut film. It was such a big project and had a big cast, including children who never acted before, and it was filmed in tough locations.
1: I like to think of filmmaking as a disease. Uh, you know, you're either sick with it or you're not. It's not something that you go out, at least, or I went out and chose. I really felt that it chose me, finally. But the pursuit is uh, very pointed and focused. My, my journey started from the love of performance, uh, of feeling intuitively happy on a stage as an actor, and uh, but feeling also limited by how much in acting you have to be at the mercy of other people's visions, you know, your nose may be too big for this role or your voice may not be high enough for that role or whatever, Uh, so as an actor, I was very early on aware that I would have no control over my life, even though I loved the practice of the craft Um, and the other burning question, uh, just from childhood days and just from growing up in India, is that we live, live uh, cheek by jowl, you know, with those who have and those who have nothing. And why is this? Why is this injustice? What is this? How does we? How do we live our lives so intertwined and yet so unfair? And that was the question, you know, whether art could actually. Disturb this question, you know, or inform this question, or whether it couldn't. And I did think that no matter how much I loved acting, it would not answer that question, you know, which led me to then. Taking a course in photography, which of course taught me about the v- sacredness of the making a frame, but yet it was observational as a profession. You know, you looked at the world rather than engaged in the world. But it was the love of the frame, that then catapulted me into the pursuit of cinema verite, documentary, the cinema of truth. You know, where I studied with Ricky Leacock and Penny Baker and stuff as an undergraduate at at Harvard, where I had the scholarship and. And that that was the first time I felt that, finally, here is an art form that encompasses all my loves. You know, my love of people, my love of uh, looking at the world visually, uh, of performance, of this or that. But uh, I could hopefully tell a story. In the first seven years, it was um, surrendering and entering. Uh, the people's worlds that existed, whether it be strippers in a nightclub in Bombay or whether it be um, the ward of a g- geriatric ward of a hospital in, in Boston. Uh, these are different films I made in the course of seven years before Salam Bombay. So by the time I came to making my first feature film, Salam Bombay, I had already made several documentaries. And documentaries are a lonely, patience, striving, painstaking business, where often you may or may not have an audience even at the end of that endeavor of making a documentary. But that's what told me that this is what I am cut out for. You know, the rigor of it, the struggle of it. This was something I believed in and, and and I could do. And it also made me, uh, you know, I call it now, you have to have a heart of a poet and the skin of an elephant. It, it also gave me that uh, bulldozer quality. <laughs> if I really want to have something, uh, I have to just pursue it. I have to have the patience, I have to have the humility, and I have to have the respect to enter people's lives in the way that I wanted to enter it, you know, in order to tell a story about them or my version of that story. And it was the desire to get a wider audience for that type of work that led me to make a fiction feature film. I never looked at documentary as a stepping stone to fe- fiction. I, I, I did that because I loved it, but but it was disheartening in the early 80s to never have an audience for a documentary except, except in the television, which was yeah. like a void of some sort. You never knew what people would think and you never knew what the reaction was or anything. And that led me to make a film um, like Salam Bombay, which was a real coming together of all my interests. We we put together um, a workshop of about 100-plus street kids, um, just like my theater days, uh, and we put together... Um, uh, film crew, which is again starting out like me, Sandy Sissel, who's the cinematr- cinematographer of Salam Bombay. It's her first feature as well, and uh, you know, uh, we put together, of course, initially very importantly, the story and the screenplay by Suni Tara Purwala and myself. We are we were best friends at at Harvard, and she's from Bombay. And this, you know, we we basically followed four months of street kids, one gang of rag pickers, and l- practically lived their lives and then took their dreams and their stories and their and our own imaginations and created the screenplay of what became Salaam Bombay. So by that time, I was already diseased, you know. I, I was already sh- clear that this is what I want to do, you know. Yeah. And uh, And I do have... You know there is. I, I sometimes I I call it the foolish confidence. You know of of the Ivy League, where you can just sort of bash on and believe that the worst that can happen is someone will say no to you. But otherwise, also you know I'm the youngest child of a of of uh, I have two older brothers and I'm the youngest kid and the daughter and uh, I had to they were the best teachers my brothers because I had to always deserve an audience for them they they would otherwise mock me tease me and shut me up you know so I was already geared in a in a world without where pretension had no place Uh, and that I had to sing for my supper in a very real way like if you want to tell a story you goddamn well be riveting you know not just faff around and waste my time you know so I came from that type of uh, thickened skin in in the best possible sense perhaps and also being uh, independent, you know, on my own both in the theatre uh, from the ages of 16, 17 and then coming abroad alone, you know finding my voice through anonymity through not knowing, no one's looking out for me, you know, I'm just finding my way uh, in a foreign place you know, uh, this all gives you courage, you know, it gives me, uh, and then of course being in a pretty elite institution like Harvard, it, it does give you a foolish confidence, you know uh, that they teach you to, to that nothing is impossible, you know? That if you, you know, why why don't you ask, you know, Denzel Washington to do this part, even though you have not even a filmmaker or just made one film? The worst that can happen is say, he'll say no, you know? And These kinds of weird lessons are very important lessons to believe in yourself and to carry on, you know? Yeah. So I... Um, so you. I learned. I learned from seven years of making documentaries and the loneliness of it, I must say, and the toughness of it. You know, when I lived in India Cabaret, I made a film in 85 with strippers in a nightclub in Bombay. Everyone thought I was a stripper, you know, and it was the best way to be because uh, I understood then very directly what it felt like, you know. Uh, and so anyway, so that these are all, in retrospect, these are ways that encourage that thick-skinned confidence that you must keep on going, you know. Um, And also, it very importantly taught me uh, humility, you know, to, how to enter people's lives is not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. You know, people have to accept you and actually like you (laughs) to to uh, to share their world with you you know and the all these training is very important for what eventually becomes the kind of feature films that i made which are really still i think even though they are fiction and they follow that form they are an amalgam of everyday life and its unpredictability and the and the people of it within a fiction context
0: during, during the filming of Salam Bombay, did you have doubts that this could be something that might not be received well with the audience? That it might suck? And um, do you still remember the first moment? Did you expect the reaction it got? And um, do you remember the first time you realized that this could be something great?
1: You know, the beauty of uh, beginning anything is that you have no expectations. Genuinely, there is a line in the Bhagavad Gita: uh, "Beware the fruits of action, uh, and uh, you know, beware them, because the results of your action might paralyze you." You know, uh, and but the beauty of Salaam Bombay was that I had never been to a feature film festival even in my life forget about going to Cannes and dreaming of it you mm-hmm. know i had only been to documentary film festivals you know so here i was at the first time in Cannes with salam bombay um, without any publicity without any brochures without any <laughs> band baja wow. at all except that it was uh, loved by the organizers of Cannes and it was scheduled for closing night uh, which is a big honor uh, and and uh, yes, so when I, and at that, at that, at that closing night, you know, it was 30 minutes standing ovation, literally by the 30 clock. minutes. 30 minutes. And yeah, then you just
0: stand up and clap You for stand minutes. up
1: and they really know how to do it. It must be really
0: awkward for you to just sit there and just I read. didn't
1: know whether to cry or to laugh or to, you know, and also you couldn't get out of there because no one was moving. You were just standing up and clapping. And and so that definitely woke me up into it something. And you know, there's a there's a there's a, a lovely thing in the film where the chaipa or the tea boy uh, smokes or buys or steals this Ganesh bidi. You know these yeah. uh, bidi's, these little leaf cigarettes. And right after the thirty minutes ovation, there was a young French girl who came to my hand and just gave me two Ganesh bidi <laughs> and said. Uh, Mira, this is for you. And I was just like, oh my god! That's and, funny. And then, and I was in, I was uh, living. I had no money even for a hotel room uh, at Cannes. And I was had rented a room in a pension, in a in like an Airbnb, like one room in an old lady's. Home, yeah. you know, and uh, and her. I, they were, of course, this was 1988. There was no cell phones. There were no phones. I, I used the landline of that old lady for my catalog. For the can, you know, where can you find Mira Nair? I, <laughs> I had the landline of the phone of the old lady's wow. pension. And when I went back after the premiere and the screening at about two in the morning, that phone rang from two a.m till 9 a.m.
0: Wow. And
1: I just would scramble to the hallway where the phone was and just pick it up. And by the morning, we had sold the whole world. Wow. Except the USA, which held out for a bit. But every country in the world was basically buying the film. And all that was the first time. And right up to the Oscars, everything we had was the first time. Uh, Publicity, by the way, nine months of publicity around the whole world that I had to do was also for the first time. So it's um a... it's a beautiful thing when the first time, because you don't have a model to follow. You don't have any expectations. And then this thing keeps unfolding. Uh, it never happened really exactly like that. It did. The little versions of that happened with Monsoon Wedding later on and uh, to some extent with, you know, uh, the namesake and different movies I mm-hmm. made. But in that kind of fairy tale of you going there as nobody and then you're emerging as... You know, the toast of the town. Yeah. It doesn't happen often.
0: That's a rare fairy tale kind of story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but it's a fairy tale with a lot of grit and brutal of hard work and pain and, and joy. Because as you know, we took the profits of the movie and we immediately began the Salam Balak Trust for Street Kids, which is now a 33-year-old organization and uh, and all of that. So uh, in that sense, it was, uh, it is uh, the beautiful success story. But it doesn't happen often, you know. You can work your whole life. I mean, I have. I've always, I'm always working, always making films. But success is elusive. Inspiration sometimes is elusive. Um, and, uh, yeah. So but it's beautiful when when it can happen, especially for something that is such a risk. And and uh, no one, I mean, everybody thought I was nuts in India. You know, we were shooting on the streets of Kamathipura, the red light area. We were shooting with as much care. We had silks uh, for diffusing light across all these red light area streets. And people thought, where's the movie star? Who are we protecting to make look so good? And there were these five street kids. And they were saying, what the hell are you doing? Why do you have to make this look so extraordinary, you know, uh, if it's just street kids? Mm-hmm. And for me it was every frame was sacred and every frame had to be a certain way Uh, but I had no firstly no time to imagine that it could be a success you know and secondly no models to follow
0: this is a question from your son Zoran oh he wants me to ask you about Nani at Cannes
1: oh (laughs) no Nani is my mom Mm -hmm. uh, his grandmom um and Nani and uh, and Nanu, my parents uh, came with me to Salam Bombay at Cannes. Uh, it was the first film festival that they had ever come with me on. Um, and my mom always wore saris and does wear saris. And and at that time in France, uh, it was not so often to see an Indian film, hardly ever in Cannes, and certainly not so many Indians. And uh, after the success of Salam Bombay. Uh, she would be walking in the croissette with her sari on, and you know, with her in a sari, and and uh, people would mob her and say, "Are you, are you with Salaam Bombay? Are you, you know?" And she just would stand up very beautifully and say, "I am the producer of the director." <laughs> 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 and it became it became a headline in the can newspapers. a producer of the director, and it, it, indeed, it's true. You know, my mom. Um, you know has been a major inspiration for me because she's comes from the streets in the in the sense that she works as a social worker she's always been engaged in the life beyond her comfort zone you know right. and uh, she she taught me early on that no words action you know of course i took the word action into a profession yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but uh, she she's always engaged with those who don't have half as much as she does
0: Were your parents very supportive of you uh, working in these kind of dangerous adult areas?
1: Not at all. They were not supportive of me at all working in dangerous areas. When I chose to live with the strippers in, you know, India Cabaret, they disowned me in the sense that they just said to people oh, Mira doesn't uh, you know she's not around <laughs> you know she does They, they just did not want to when I started working as a waitress in New York City and people would come through New York from India and stuff they would say oh, Mira is no longer living in New York so, they, they so had the waitress shame. really
0: waitress was the shame what about it. filmmaking in general
1: Filmmaking, that that was the beauty, you know, of working in anon- anonymous ways, you know. And it's, I'm talking, and again, 70s, 80s, where people now, every second kid you meet wants to make a film. Then it was highly unusual. And uh, so the best part was I was finding my way on my own rather than having a whole uh, jhund with me, you know, of my family <laughs> observing and, you know, dissecting and judging. They didn't do it. I mean, they weren't around, you know. So, yes, they saw me through my... Jholaywala days as they call it which is the sort of uh, the documentary filmmaking days they didn't have much to say about it you know as to they didn't really see those movies the documentary films I made yeah. uh, but it was Salam Bombay which was the first feature film that they uh, came to the film festival and they saw you know what was involved and after that my mom became in. Incredibly, my father was proud of me, but my mom became incredibly supportive of me. So while I then got married and had a baby and so on, she always came with me while I was shooting and while I was, you know, doing it. She, as well as my mother and father-in-law, Ami and uh, Dada, my my husband's parents, and this was my caravan. This is why I've never stopped working, is because I had the support of my. my parents and his parents to actually look after our son Zoran while I was shooting 15 hours a day wherever it might be so uh, uh, then they really understood the, the the blood and sweat of movie making like they couldn't believe how hard I had to work and yeah. how long the hours were and and the different challenges that would come you know then they really saw it firsthand. but otherwise people have no idea what it takes
0: to make a film no, that's when that's when they give you the respect you uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> well they, they did like the films you know very much so th- I think the respect came with liking the film yeah yeah.
0: everybody has this fantasy where they're walking down the street and a director comes to them and goes you're the perfect <laughs> you, you know, you're the perfect person to be in my movie you're going to be the lead actor in my movie you're going to go to Hollywood that director is pretty much you because there are a lot of movies that you have where you cast these uh, non-actors and you just throw them into these movie sets, and you have them play against opposite professional actors. How do you get them to act? And do you take the opposite approach and make them not act? Because some of the roles, the characters are very innocent or underdog. Is that why you cast these non-actors? Because you can get that innocence look?
1: Well, you know, I came from theater, and I came from documentary cinema. So... There was no way I was going to make a feature film on street kids and cast upper-class children who had come out of the fancy boarding schools. Right. Because the map of life of a street kid's existence is on his hands and on her face and in her eyes. It's not something you can act or, you know, in a way direct, you know. And that rough-and-tumble existence of survival is not something that you can, you know, get. That's one, one of the reasons... A Slumdog Millionaire was not so great for me because midway, these children changed from being actually from the street to being actually from the fancy boarding schools pretending to be the street kids, you know. Right. And I didn't believe that because, every, you know, in the subcontinent, how you speak, how you stand, what your accent is, what your language is, all belies your past and your class and your education. So I like to cast those that come from the story that I'm trying to tell. You mm-hmm. know, and in the street kids case, it was fairly obvious that I wanted that on their faces and their hands and their toughness. You know, but other times too, in several of my films, looking backwards, a lot of my films have this amalgam. This is the signature: is to have a lot of so-called non-actors opposite legendary actors. You know, so um, any film you take, if you take uh, uh, Monsoon Wedding, for instance. Uh, half my family is acting in that film in big roles, you know, opposite a Nasiruddin Shah or opposite a Shafali Shah. Um but sometimes people would drop out, you know, of parts and I would then have to really look for 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 people on the street, you know, sometimes. And um and uh, well, do you want me to tell that story? I think I told it yesterday about Kamini Khanna. Sure. But if it's a long story, but, a, I mean, yeah, yeah. why don't you tell me about Sri yeah. Chaudhary and how? Yes, get, I'll tell about how do yeah.
0: you get her to 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 act and yes. to give her the confidence she needs to play against yes. the Denza Washington. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, with uh, uh, when I was making Mississippi Masala, nineteen ninety, I needed uh, Mina. I needed a lead actor, and I had seen this pretty riveting portrait of this wild looking girl with a mane of hair uh, stunning and a strong face um, on a bicycle and I just loved her look I loved her fierce intelligence and I liked also her lack of vanity you know she was not about don't I look pretty don't I do this nothing she said it's devil may care type of attitude in her face and I asked to find her And she had meanwhile done a very interesting spread in a British magazine called Acme, I think, of a four-page spread as a model, you know, opposite somebody else. And I loved those images of her. Sent these images over to Susie Figgis, who was my casting director, uh, and I said, find this girl, you know. And assuming she was in England. And she was. She was a film student, theory student, not an actor. And and this girl was brought in. And uh, I just talked with her and and uh, and read with her, and she had never thought to be an actor, and uh, but she was, you know, I could just tell, you know, that she really had the Mina uh, quality, and um, and it's about again, it's that same the documentary training, you know, making people really feel comfortable, making them be who they are, uh, because you are who you are, perhaps, you know, um, and and then starting the audition process in the sense of bringing in some, the the screenplay uh, you know and the scripts and so on and and just her uh, she just had it you know she had the ability to be herself and she was had actually again lived A very strong part of that life of Mina of somebody who lived between worlds who looks very different from the white mainstream that she's sitting around but who holds her own with them etc which is Mina you know and uh, so I took a chance and then showed her pictures to Denzel who really uh, thought they were just fine and then flew her in to talk and work with me and Denzel and we did this sort of very laid back rehearsal you know just the three of us and then it became clearer and clearer this is definitely Mina you know Uh, and that's how that happened but I think for me it's uh, always having an eye for people I really look at people (laughs) even now I'm looking at people I'm casting in a a sense all the time Uh, uh, and then taking a you know then Working with them, talking to them. I think it's a lot to do also with my cinema verite background of making people like entering their world instead of having them leap into mine, you know. And then, secondly, being a trained actor myself before, I just know how not to demand an acting performance, but how to help that person find their way into getting me what I would like.
0: I don't think people notice enough, but there is a lot of people out there. Who you, whose lives you've changed and whose careers you've changed. You know, Sarita Chaudhary is an example. You gave Kel Penn his first dramatic role. I think Randeep Huda made his debut with Monsoon Wedding. Uh, you hired Raul Chitela out of engineering, and now he has his movie coming out. And I think Lupita Nyong'o was an intern for you at one point. Of course. So you have these all these people that you've kind of encouraged.
1: Irfan Khan. It, I yes. I took him out of the basement of National School of Drama, you know. And... Uh, and uh, you know, and and even lovely Salman Thur, you know, the great uh, painter. Uh, I went to his Pratt uh, student thesis project, you know, when he was graduating from Pratt, and just had to buy this amazing painting of Auntie G that I loved, uh, that I still live with. It's in my study, and uh, you know, I, I I love to I love to swallow life. You know, I love to. Um, i love to see people who are just have have the fire of a certain kind of originality and talent and who have who have uh, belief in in pursuing that and um, yeah there's several people in acting who have started uh, you know with me yeah. uh, some big stars now uh, tilotama shom is one of them she was alice in monsoon wedding nana patekar is one of them yeah, he was the pimp Salaam in salam bombay, bombay. Um, and, of course, Randeep Hooda, yeah, and, and um, so many, actually. Um, it's it, crazy. It, it's one of my, actually, one of my uh, treasures. Uh, is Somebody said that, you know, you've started so many people off, uh, and it's one of my uh, things that gives me great happiness. I mean, uh, we are now doing a stage musical of Monsoon Wedding, which I've been developing for almost 12 years, and we're going to open now in November 22. And the person who played... 3 years ago when we started casting for it in North America it's very difficult to find south asian actors who have that you know triple threat of singing dancing and acting that broadway requires and i very with great difficulty found people and michael malaikal this wonderful wonderful young man who played the lead who played the bridegroom in monsoon wedding when we opened here in berkeley california is now playing aladdin as aladdin on broadway you know for instance, and and no one knew how to look at him before, you know, and before he was cast in Monsoon. So that is one of my uh, secret joys is is just uh, is being able to plumb talent when it's in, when it's there, you know, and mm-hmm. bring it to another place.
0: After Salaam Bombay's success, the world is watching you now, and you decide to go and make Mississippi Masala. <laughs> How did Mississippi Masala come about? Because what is really interesting is that the historical context of the movie is not really well known at all. So to get people to believe in the project must have been really tough because it's just just a hard movie to sell. And if you add to that, I don't think there are any white characters in the movie. And two, the love story is based around two different non-white characters, which I don't think was ever done before that. Yeah. And even today, if you were to pitch that movie, I don't think anybody would really be interested in it.
1: So what's the question? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the question is, uh, why did you choose that movie? Oh, I see. Like, oh. I, after that, you know, I'm sure you were getting all these big studio movies coming in to direct, but you chose this little movie with not-so-well-known history behind it yeah. with Africa and Uganda.
1: Well... Um, after Salam Bombay, I, I was offered genuinely every film that had children of every color <laughs> in it, and again, it's um. I, I also, you know, I also had every lot of agents, you know, Hollywood agents after me to represent me, and I came from that weird bulldozing place where I didn't require an agent. I thought I said, "Why an agent? You know, I know." That I'm I'm not going to be here to hustle for jobs, you know. I'm going to be doing my work, you know. And uh, I didn't want to be regarded like as somebody available in the marketplace. Weirdly, weirdly, you know. And um. But but certainly, I was pretty clear about the movies on children coming to me. That I didn't want to repeat myself. I did. I'd just done that, and I did not need to do that again. And I was very clear-eyed about how that's what Hollywood, that's what our film industry does is that you proved yourself on one thing, now make 10 times over, you Mm -hmm. know? And I kind of had a weird wisdom that life is not long, life is short, and you have to do things that are still a challenge almost every time, you know? And the idea for Mississippi Masala w- w- came to me from being a brown kid between black and white at, at university, you know, and I, I at Harvard, you know, and I was very much somebody who swung between both communities with ease, you know, and yet saw invisible lines between us all. And uh, so I was looking for a story that I could hang this idea on, the idea being the hierarchy of color, you know, the the, the different ways black, white, and brown, you know, interact and are together. Um, And that's when I started reading and I read about just, you know, cerebral level, the Ugandan expulsion in 1972 by Idi Amin of all the Asians who had never left, who had never been to India even, who had lived there for three generations, suddenly asked to leave, uh, 90 days they were given. And also this weird, there used to be an Indian tabloid called India Abroad and there was a newspaper in La, in New York which used to you know, write these stories of Indians coming from Uganda and different places who were taking over the dirt poor motels of Mississippi mm. and I thought that's just a bizarre trick of history that to go to the birthplace of civil rights movement in Mississippi where African Americans are the stronghold and where They have never been to Africa either, you know, and I just cooked that up. You know, it's like, what if what if there's uh, uh, what if a brown kid falls for a black guy and what happens? How do you challenge these schisms of color and community uh, through love? Is it possible? You know, and uh, So that was just the cerebral idea. I did not know East Africa. I did not know the South. And then I asked Suni Tharapurwala again, my dear friend, Mm -hmm. and we both went on a long journey of social science research, essentially living in and out of motels over several months, as well as going to East Africa uh, and, you know, the dream of the place that the Asians had left and still dreamt of. And that, of course, changed my whole life because... That another chapter of my life started after that.
0: <laughs> what was the Indian American reaction to Mississippi Masala? Because there's a lot of anti-black oh. racism in the community, especially back then.
1: Oh, it was uh, extraordinary. Uh, I mean, the the one of the premises of making Mississippi Masala was holding a mirror to the racism within us all. Yes, you know, and 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 the movie does it, I think, very cleverly and funnily as well through a lot of humor uh, about how the brown people think of the blacks and vice versa too and so on Um, when the film came out which was it was a success it had a really good uh, reception and played very strongly in many places I mean Indian guys would just like follow me on the subway you know and come and challenge me and say to me what do you want to do huh you're wanting our children our daughters to just marry black people no you, way you think every black guy is denzel washington who are you what are you doing you know like why no are you way. challenging the status quo you know and uh, and then they would say uh, i am a doctor in a porsche i'm driving a porsche why aren't you making films about people like me and i would say as soon as a doctor in a Porsche becomes interesting, I'll be right there with my camera, you know? And that would not shut them up, you know? They would keep going. So it was a lot of... Uh, wow. uh, Why do you uh, think
0: they took it so because personal? It,
1: because, you know... Because it's true? It is true, exactly, it's true. And it's also, we were still such a unseen minority in American society at that time. So there was this umbrage like if you must show us, then show us in a quote unquote good light, you know, in doctor in a Porsche. Don't show us, you know, watching striptease dancers or don't show us, uh, you know, calling the blacks Kalu and this and that. You know, don't show us in our (laughs) real real life. (laughs) So uh, there was that pressure, too, because there was so little known about us is that make it good, make it good.
0: I think in today's generation, in in Western society, a lot of uh, young brown people, when they want to write a story or or do something artistic, there's a point where they have to feel like, should I explain myself to my Western audience or should I just let them figure it out? And I find that in a lot of your movies, you don't really explain a lot of cultural uh, gestures or actions or things like that. Do you do that on purpose? Like, you don't want to explain anything. For example... Uh, Cal Penn shaved his head in the movie The Namesake because of his father's death You, it's a really big part Moment. in the movie but you don't explain anything about that why he's doing it we all have to figure it out you know, I know because I have you know friends in the culture but someone who has no idea what that is is might be a bit confused so do you on purposely just hope that they're smart enough to figure it out
1: you know I refuse to pander I refuse to uh teach you the red dot means X, you know. But at the same time, I don't want to confuse or obfuscate. So it's not like, so. and I've walked this tightrope now for 35, 40 years, you know. So it's never to confuse or assume that you know or to make an in-joke, no. It is to tell you other ways that you understand, you know, how this is. So for instance, when Cal shaved his head, uh, which was a beautiful thing that uh, Sunni Tharapurwala uh, actually added to the screenplay. From It was not in the book. Um, w- how I explained it was when much earlier in the film, in the story, when Ashima's father dies, uh, her, her brother in the film um, sh- sh- with a shaved head in respect to the father having died calls her up in America and tells her, that her, our father has gone. And it's a hint to the audience that if you're noticing it, uh, that you see that he is bald. And he was a young man, he was only 20 years old, and you know him in the film with head of hair. So now you see that he's got a bald head, you know, and he's talking only about the death of the father. And then later in the film, when when he dies, uh, when, when Ashima's own husband dies, Gogol's father, Kalpen's father dies, Um, that's why we have that the shaving of the head and the shaving of the head was accompanied by this rap song that I commissioned for that section which was uh, a great song that they cooked up about tradition and rules and rituals and and Atonement, you know, f- these are the layers of respect that we give our ancestors when they pass. And in using that song, it's a montage sequence of Cal getting his head shaved and it goes into the little Cal, the young Gogol, looking at his father, Irfan, shaving his head when his father had died. So these are not all explained in two plus two kind of way, but it's all of a piece to understand that this is what happens when fathers die, the oldest sons shave their hair out of respect, but also out of, uh, you know, uh, an, a layered tradition that has happened from generations. So that's how I like to do it, you know, using cinema in all its sort of glory, I hope, mm-hmm. you know, to make these ideas clear, and even if not fully clear, at least powerful.
0: There is a lot of music and singing, uh, lots of singing in your movies. Yeah. This is a question from Ali he told me he's a big fan of your movie soundtracks. In fact, he was part of uh, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. He feels like there's a music producer inside you somewhere, and he wants to know if you ever considered making an album.
1: You know, I am a music producer, and I love it most uh, uh, to do, and all my soundtracks are very carefully uh, not just curated but uh, also commissioned into actual uh melodies and, and bringing things together. Yeah. A lot of found music in them as well. A lot of times, mu- uh, move, uh, movies are inspired by a piece of music for me. The namesake was inspired uh, almost completely by um, Nitin Sony had done a beautiful song, uh, the Boatman song, in one of his albums and I loved it and I used it in the film and we wrote uh, you know, a lot to that song. Um, but Nitin hadn't done any kind of soundtrack like I got him to do with uh, the the namesake it took us weeks together to really cull this extraordinary soundtrack that he did um so yeah I am a music producer all my all my soundtracks are Virtually produced by me, yeah. um, and I would love even to work with Ali uh, <laughs> as I did. I made him you sit did. in that Ritz Hotel in Old Delhi and do Dil Jalana Ki Baat, uh, you know, because I just had to have his songs, uh, his his voice somewhere, um, but. I am, I am that I do definitely feel that now I'm entering a, a, feature, a feature film uh, with uh, Pharrell Williams doing music uh, you know traversing both uh, the American sound as well as very much an Indian sound um, and then of course the stage musical that I'm about to do with Monsoon Wedding uh, with Vishal Bhardwaj's music so uh, there, uh, I, you know I uh, what can I say It's music is like oxygen for me and I think that it's really a Amazing element to bring to cinema if you use it correctly and if you don't overuse it. Uh, um, in fact, silence is uh, much more vital uh, than in order to appreciate music. I think uh, in cinema. Um, yeah, if I could make music every year in my life, I would be a very happy person.
0: You can. And I, I am. think you can sing. I think you have to I'm
1: trying to sing I am singing and Ali in fact is my teacher yeah uh, but I've not been the best student because I do too much else <laughs> Riyaz means you have to really surrender to yeah. that rigor of practice
0: yeah and uh, I think I think you're doing the musical I think you have a guru and you kind of have to be really dedicated yes. it's not like a western way of learning music no you have to be in it yeah. you have to live breathe and, and eat music
1: yes and because there's so much to learn, it's not—it's impossible to uh, know, you know, enough.
0: Can we talk about politics a bit?
1: If you want, <laughs> she says. Um,
0: a suitable boy encountered ah. some controversy. You know, some people were angry that you had scenes of Muslim a Muslim and a Hindu kissing. Uh, with the current political climate in India, is that something you worry about now when you make art? Uh, you know, with more Indian politics become more and more of art. Is um yeah with Indian politics becoming more and more of a hindrance to art. Do you still want to make movies about India and make movies set in India?
1: I think, you know, now more than ever, one has to make films or art about the human condition in the subcontinent because the great plurality uh, that is our strength, the fact that we are a deeply syncretic culture. Uh, that has come not just between India and Pakistan, but from right from Persia, Afghanistan, you know, Pakistan uh, to Kashmir to India. I mean, you know, it's it it has it has enriched our culture so deeply, both in its music, in its poetry, in its spiritual thoughts, uh, in every way, in costume, in every way, uh, in language, and that is our strength. And what I find so disheartening and unable to accept, and I will fight against the dying of the light at every moment, uh, is to separate us, is to compartmentalize that this is not us and that is not us. That is exactly what has made this culture of ours so multiple and, and abundant and, and, and strong. You know and and able to withstand also so much uh, struggle through these centuries, you know, so, I will always be making that film. I will always be making that kind of art. Um, and um, but yes, the climate to make it and the voice in which you use to do it is much more threatened today, yeah, and much more um, on the much more dangerous to do um but you know but we have to find a way
0: my this is my last question so i was watching a suitable boy Uh uh-huh and i couldn't help notice that the environment uh you know it, it takes place in the 1950s the environment the tension the political climate the the anger between the two religions if you take that And you look at India today, it's exactly the same thing. And it's pretty depressing to see that nothing's really changed since then. And when African-American author Toni Morrison was 84 years old, she was asked, someone asked her, do you feel more amused than angry now? And she replied, no, I'm angry all the time. And and she uses her writing and her books to kind of react to that. So now I'm going to ask you, how do you feel now?
1: I think, you know, Vikram said the author of uh, Suitable Boy was deeply prescient when he wrote Suitable Boy, when he wrote about these seeds of violence and dissension that had created the two countries of India and Pakistan at that time of Mm -hmm. independence. Um, And that it is true that exactly those seeds that were planted then are blooming ridiculously brightly yeah. now, you know? And, um, and it is something that, I, I think I've answered this in the previous answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is not something that I sleep peacefully at night with. You know, I, I actually live it in my own family, I'm. Uh, we have an integrated family, yeah. <laughs> and we have um, a, a family that crosses borders between India and East Africa and, and you know North America and and um, we also have a family that is in politics, you know, and and questioning the uh, que- questioning the status quo, questioning the injustice of the time. Um, so it's it's not it's. It's uh, I, I'm very much akin with Toni Morrison, you know. It's not something that it's easy to forget, you know. It's mm-hmm. in fact, it's in fact, uh, it fuels me to keep going.
0: Wow! Yeah. Awesome. Is there something you want to talk about or you want to add? Oh, I
1: think I'm good. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. I think it's been <laughs> a while. We spent a lot of time together today. Thank <laughs> you.
0: <laughs> I never think yeah, if someone I'm told good. me that I was gonna. That I was going to hang out with Mira and Nair on and have sushi with her after making my Instagram post, I'd be like, You're crazy. There's no way I'd be sitting in a room with no Aww. windows.